We open the scriptures to Matthew chapter 2. Though Christmas is past, I do intend to finish the Advent series that I started on Matthew chapter 2, so we'll have a couple more sermons out of this chapter. Finishing the history surrounding the visit of the wise men. So we're going to read the second half of the chapter now, verses 13 through 23. Verses 13, 14, and 15, the first three verses will be our text. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, He was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Thus far, we read the Holy Scriptures. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Last time we immersed ourselves in the familiar yet rich history of the wise men visiting the Lord Jesus Christ, we followed them on the final leg of their journey as they were guided by that miraculous star that God put in the sky. We followed them to the little house in Bethlehem where Jesus was. We watched them worship, and open their treasures, and present those treasures to the child king, the promised Christ. And as we, through the scriptures, watched, we also worshipped. That is the fitting response. When you come into the presence of God in the flesh, when you behold in the scriptures, His humility, 
The humility of his humanity which veiled the glory of his divinity. When you ponder who he is and what he came to do. Jehovah's salvation. We can do no other but bend the knee. And in faith offer ourselves as living sacrifices of thanks to him. Now we continue with that history. And as we continue in that history, the response ought to be the same. As we see the wonderful works of God in the life of Christ, the King, our Savior. Each step of his earthly life for our salvation ought to elicit from us praise to God. We're at a transition point in the history. Up to this point, we focused on the wise men. But now the wise men go home. God's ways are mysterious. He brought these wise men from the east, first fruits of the Gentiles. They came and they visited and they worshipped the Christ child. And now, as verse 12 reports, they go home. They go home. And they vanish from the pages of history. Leaving us with many questions. What happened to these believing wise men after this? Did they bring word home of the Christ they had seen? Surely they did. But what effect did it have? We don't know. What became of these men? What became of their generations? We don't know. God doesn't tell us. God's ways are mysterious. Now, the history focuses our attention on what will take place afterwards because there is an unresolved tension in this history. You remember that the wise men had inquired first at Jerusalem as to the location of the promised king. And they had an audience with King Herod. And King Herod had summoned the leaders of the Jews, the theologians of the day, inquiring of where the Christ should be born and had learned from Micah that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And Herod, deceitfully and deviously, had sent the wise men to Bethlehem with the command that they should return to him once they had seen the child. For he said, lying, that he wanted to go and worship the Christ as well. Even as this wicked man, with Satan behind him, plots the destruction of the Christ. And so there is this tension that is yet to be resolved. And our text now addresses how it is resolved. Verse 12 reveals that God warned the, the wise men. And sent them home by another way. Told them not to return to Herod. And very likely that took place the very same night that the wise men had visited Jesus Christ. Remember that Bethlehem was only five or six miles from Jerusalem. Herod had given them an urgent command to return to him with all speed. Very likely after visiting Jesus, their caravan perhaps camped for the night in the countryside outside of Bethlehem. Easily it could have been their intention to go back to Herod the very next morning and reveal to him the location. Of the Christ. And that very night, God spoke to them in a dream, and the wise men obeyed and returned home another way. It would not take long for Herod to reveal to realize what had happened. And as the, the history tells us, Herod was wroth. He was angry. He thought the wise men had mocked them. And he desi- he decides to implement plan B. If I cannot learn the exact location of the child, then I will kill every child two years and under in all of Bethlehem. Our text now reveals God's sovereign work, protecting the Christ, thwarting the designs of the devil, 
But the main focus of our text is on how the Lord uses this event to fulfill the ancient prophecy of Hosea, which we can read in Hosea 11 verse 1. Prophecy that God would call his son out of Egypt. And that prophecy has rich significance and lasting application for us when we look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so that's going to be our focus this morning. We're going to look at this history, but focus especially on its significance and what it teaches us about Jesus Christ, the promised King, and what it means for us as his people. Out of Egypt have I called my son. That phrase from Hosea quoted in verse 15 of the text, we take that as our theme. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Let's first look at the event, look at the the history itself, and then secondly, we'll draw out the significance and apply it to us. Likely, that very same night, after the wise men left, the events of verse 13 took place. Likely that very night, as Joseph slept, an angel appeared to him with a message from God. This had happened before, of course. We remember at the end of Matthew 1, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. And at that time, the angel had said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for the child conceived in her is from the power of the Holy Spirit. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, the angel comes with another message, but of a different sort, a warning. Verse 13 says, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. For Herod will seek to destroy the child. An urgent command, allowing for no delay. Arise, the angel says. That is, get up right now. Take Take the young child and his mother and flee, flee, run away, escape, impending danger, flee to Egypt until I send word. That is, the angel made clear to Joseph that he was to remain in Egypt until another special revelation from God came, telling him to return home. So verse 14 describes the response of Joseph, he wakes up. Joseph knows that this dream was not some fabrication of his mind. It was clear, it was lucid, it was vivid. It was just like the dream he had before in which the angel had appeared to him. There was no doubt at all. This was from the Lord. And so as the text describes, Joseph obeys without delay. He rouses his family from sleep. Joseph and Mary hastily pack whatever belongings could be carried on their backs or upon a pack mule that they might be able to use for their journey. Everything else would have to be left behind in their little house in Bethlehem. And in the dead of night, Joseph, Mary, The young child, Jesus, leave Bethlehem and disappear unnoticed into the darkness 
taking the southwesterly road from Bethlehem towards the the shore of the Mediterranean where there was a main Roman road that would lead west to Egypt. A lengthy journey. Journey of over 100 miles on foot. Which they have to suddenly undertake without expecting it. With very little preparation. Ponder that for a moment. This history is so familiar to us that sometimes we can take it very matter-of-factly and not really think about the human implications of this. Put yourself in Joseph and Mary's shoes for a moment. What a jarring thing this must have been. That very night, the wise men had come, and that was jarring in itself. But what a wonderful night it had been as they beheld the wise men worshiping the son that God had given, the promised Christ, and as they had opened their treasures and presented to him gifts, what a marvelous night it had been. And then they had gone to sleep, not knowing that in a matter of hours they would be awakened and told something they did not know, that Herod who ruled over Judea, knew about the child, knew about the Christ, and was seeking to slay their son, and that they would have to flee right now into the night, leaving everything, leaving that house in Bethlehem that they had obtained, no doubt, by the sweat of their brows. Joseph and Mary were not wealthy, leaving All of their possessions that they could not take with them. And the few possessions they had were all all the more precious on account of their poverty. Leaving not only home, but homeland. All that is familiar. All that felt safe. Leaving the promised land. Leaving the synagogue. Leaving the worship of God to live the vulnerable life of a sojourner in a strange land. Where they knew nobody. Where they knew not the language. Where they knew not the culture. Where would they live? How would they survive? They're told in the middle of the night simply to go to Egypt. What a whirlwind of shock, fear, sadness. Must have swirled in their minds. Life had just started to settle down. There was peace in Bethlehem. And suddenly there is this affliction. The sudden upheaval. Turning upside down of their lives. And how it must have been hard to make sense of it all. Perhaps Mary thought about the words the angel had told her. When the angel had appeared to her in Luke chapter 1. Telling her that the child that she would bear would be the Christ. The king, David's greater son, who would sit upon the throne in his kingdom should have no end. How does that fit now with this word of the angel to flee, to flee into Egypt because Herod the king seeks the child's life? It did not make sense. This was a mighty trial of their faith. Think about it. How hard it must have been to receive. This word of the angel. We see that God sustained Joseph and Mary and sustained their faith. And that promptly they obey. And that obedience arises out of faith. 
belief in the word of God as it came to them through the angel. As verse 14 says, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Despite the fear, the sadness, all the questions they must have had, they trusted and promptly obeyed. You see something of their forefather Abraham reflected here. Remember what Hebrews 11 verse 8 says of Abraham? By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out. Remember, Abraham did not know where he was going to go. God had said, I am calling you to leave your father's home, your family, and to go to a place that I will show you. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, he obeyed and went out, not knowing whither he went. So it is with Joseph and Mary. That very night, they arise, they go, they flee into Egypt. Though they knew geographically whither they went, they knew nothing about what awaited for them where they went. How long they would be there, where they would live, what would happen. So an application comes out here. We, we see in this event, the wonderful grace of God. Grace that creates faith. And grace that sustains faith in intense trial. That's what this was for Joseph and Mary. They trust. And they obey. And they go forward. Even when God's word requires that their whole life be turned upside down. For us, in our afflictions, when God's sovereign hand leads us in a way that does not make sense, perhaps it seems contrary to what we expected Him to do in our lives. When God's sovereign hand turns our lives upside down and puts us in the crucible of affliction, How do we respond? You know the response that comes naturally to our flesh. To question, to murmur, to grumble. To become overcome with fear. Trust. Trust. And obey the word of the Lord. As we see here in this passage. Trust. Even when God doesn't answer all the questions you might have. Joseph and Mary didn't have the answer to the questions. All of those questions swirling in their mind. Those questions were not answered to their satisfaction before they got up and went. No, at the command of the Lord, they arose, they went. That's walking by faith. That's the Christian life. We've made the application to trials, but it really applies to all of life. The Christian life is walking by faith as a pilgrim, as a stranger in this world. Going where God says go. Even when we do not know whither. Even when we do not fully understand. We trust him who called us. So Joseph and Mary and the young child make that journey to Egypt. 
days on the road, over a hundred miles before they reach the border of Egyptian territory. And as the text says, according to the word of God, they stay there until the death of Herod, when God, in a dream, will call Joseph to come back home. A few interesting details that we can think about here. Why Egypt? Why Egypt? Well, humanly speaking, Egypt was a logical place for Joseph and Mary to go to escape the threat that was Herod. West of Judea was the Arabian Desert. There was no refuge there. North was Samaria and Galilee, too close to Herod's jurisdiction, too close to his sphere of influence. Egypt, to the southwest, was close enough to reach, yet far enough outside of Herod's jurisdiction and sphere of influence. It was a place where they would be safe. Egypt, at this time in history, was a relatively safe place. It was a Roman province now, and could be reached by Roman roads, making travel possible. Moreover, During the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Egypt had become a kind of haven for Jews. The rulers, the Ptolemies, who reigned in Egypt at this time, were friendly and tolerant of the Jews. And so many Jewish communities had sprung up in Egypt during this time. And so though the text doesn't tell us how long Joseph and Mary stayed in Egypt or where they lived while they were in Egypt, we can surmise that upon reaching Egypt, Joseph and Mary found a local Jewish community there in Egypt and made their temporary home among fellow Jews. Another interesting detail to think about is how the gifts of the wise men must have played a role in this. Precious gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, extremely costly. How did Joseph and Mary survive for the months or years even that they spent in Egypt? We can surmise that the gifts of the wise men helped fund their time in Egypt. Helped them find a place to live. Helped them find food to eat. And we see the wonder here then of God's provision. Little did the wise men know that as they brought those gifts of worship, that that very night, those gifts would be needed. By Joseph and Mary and Christ himself. For their flight into Egypt. God provides. And God provides in ordinary or in extraordinary ways. Unknown to the Magi who went home, their gifts were used by God to preserve the family of Jesus Christ for their time in Egypt. A couple more applications to note now. As we look at the event, the historical event of the flight into Egypt, before we turn to draw out its significance. First, God protects. Let that application enter our hearts this morning. God protects. That's such a basic fact of the scriptures. We hear that truth time and time again. So much so that it easily runs off our backs. But God protects. 
He is the almighty protector. And we see that in the sovereign protection of his son. For our salvation. The king who reigned in Judea, in that part of Israel at the time, was bent upon the destruction of the Christ. This devious man was plotting to slay the Christ child, but God ensured that not a hair would fall from his son's head until his hour had come. Christ came into the world not to die upon the sword of Herod, but Christ came into the world, yes, to die, but to die at his appointed time, in the God-appointed way, as the mediator of the covenant, as Jehovah's salvation on the cross of Calvary. God the Father watched. Psalm 121 says so beautifully, God is our unsleeping guardian. He never slumbers nor sleeps. So that the sun does not smite by day nor the moon by night. He watches over the going out and the coming in. And we see that watchful care of God the Father over Christ, His only begotten Son in the flesh. And now that watchful care Of God, the unsleeping guardian for Christ, his son, is a watchful care that extends to us, God's sons and daughters, through the work of Christ, the only begotten son. He watches over our going out and our coming in. The thoughts of every heart are known to him. Let us Meditate upon that truth day by day as we go out, as we come in, as we go about our earthly lives. We are the adopted children of God through Christ. The fatherly care of the Almighty abides upon us. Connect it to our New Year's passage. We abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Notice also in this passage the utter futility of man's every effort to oppose God and man's every effort to oppose God's people. Herod did everything in his power. We'll see that next time especially. To destroy the Christ. He did everything in his power to keep his plot secret. To launch a surprise attack as it were upon Bethlehem. That he might catch the Christ in his net. And yet there is no contingency plan. There is no device of human devising. That can thwart the all-knowing God. How could Herod stop an angel from appearing to Joseph in the night, warning him of Herod's plan and having him flee into Egypt? What that shows us is the utter futility of every effort to oppose God and his people. It shows us very concretely the truth of the prophet's words in Isaiah 
Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. The sword of Herod, a weapon aimed at, formed against the Christ here, does not prosper. And every weapon formed against those who belong to this Christ shall not prosper. It might cause hardship. That is part of our calling and indeed a privilege as the people of God to suffer for Christ's sake. The weapons that are formed against us by the evil one may inflict pain, may disrupt our lives, may even turn our lives upside down. Yes, but can they destroy us? Can they truly harm us? Can they separate us from our God and our Father? Or separate us from the inheritance of all blessings that is ours through Him? No. No. And the entire scripture is the testimony to that, that every device Satan has deployed in his history-long war against the seed of the woman has been thwarted and turned upon its head. As you and I go about our earthly lives, going out, coming in, working, Caring for family, facing the troubles, facing the afflictions, facing the powers of evil that so often array themselves against us, struggling with our own sinful flesh. Let this word stick with us and sink into our hearts. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Finally, the flight to Egypt shows something more about Christ's humiliation and suffering. Indeed, it is another step in the intensification of Jesus' humiliation and suffering, even as a little child. And this is what his entire life would be. Psalm 88 verse 15 is true of Christ more than any other. I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. There was no room for Christ in Bethlehem. There was no concern for him in Jerusalem. None come to visit him but lowly shepherds and Gentile wise men. And now the Christ, yet a young child, must flee his home, must flee the land of Israel itself to seek refuge in a foreign land in Egypt of all places. Jesus' humility is on display here. Think about it. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He is the promised King. And yet this Christ humbles himself. And this passage gives content to that word humility. He humbles himself, taking upon himself our flesh. Our lowly flesh, the lowly flesh of a child, the weakest of flesh. Here we see Jesus in his weakness. Humanly speaking, he is helpless before the sword of Herod that is being raised to strike him. He is weak, he is vulnerable, such that he has to flee with his mother Mary and his adoptive father Joseph into Egypt. This puts his humility on display. This is part of the foolishness of the cross. 
Men look at this and say, what kind of savior is this? Why not have God Almighty in heaven send a legion of angels to come and stand at the defense of his son and crush the soldiers of Herod? God could do that. Jesus himself would say that near the end of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, legions of angels were at his disposal. But that's not what God does. That's not the way of salvation. Christ came into the world to humble himself to death. He came not to conquer by earthly power or earthly might, but to give himself to the death of the cross to be a ransom for many. We see the foolishness of the cross here. A stumbling block to the wise of the world, but a wonder to behold to the eyes of faith. So it is then. Joseph, Mary, and the young child Jesus sojourn in Egypt. They are sent there by God until the death of Herod. When God would call his son out of Egypt. Now we come to the second point. Getting at the significance of this event. There is more to this event than God sovereignly protecting his son. That is happening here, and we've made application of that, and that's a beautiful truth of the text. But there's more here. There is more to his going to Egypt than that it was, humanly speaking, a logical place because it could be reached, and there were Jewish communities where Joseph and Mary could find refuge. The main significance of this historical event is what we read in verse 15 of our text. And Jesus was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. God himself, through the prophet, had spoken this centuries ago, that he would call his son out of Egypt. Matthew here cites an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Hosea. Hosea ministered to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, about 750 years before the birth of Christ. Hosea ministered to the northern kingdom in a day of great sin and apostasy. The northern kingdom had turned away from God and had given itself wholly to idols. And One of the main ideas of the book of Hosea is God's unfailing covenant faithfulness to his utterly unfaithful people. And in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, we read this prophecy. We'll look there a minute. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him 
and called my son out of Egypt. Matthew here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, sees the event of Jesus' flight and return from Egypt as the great fulfillment of these ancient words. At first glance, when you look at Hosea 11 verse 1, these words don't appear to be prophetic, but historical. They appear to describe past events, and indeed they do. In the first place, these words are historical. Hosea here is reflecting on God's covenant dealings with Israel in the past, particularly the Exodus, God's deliverance of his Old Testament church from Egypt, the house of bondage. And Hosea in this chapter contrasts God's unfailing love and covenant faithfulness with Israel's unfaithfulness to God. They rebelled against God and betrayed their covenant friend, Sovereign. God loved Israel, Hosea 11 verse 1 says. When Israel was a child, then I loved him. And that's a beautiful statement. God set his love upon an undeserving people. Not because there was something in them that drew God to them, but simply because he was pleased to love them and take them into the bosom of his covenant. There's a beautiful statement of this sovereign Love of God that we can read in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8. This is God's love for his people. His love for the elect kernel of Old Testament Israel. And his love for the New Testament church today. Because they are one people. The entire body of his elect in Jesus Christ. This is the word of his love to them. In Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When Israel was a child, God loved him. And called him out of Egypt. In Israel's national infancy, you might say, they came to Egypt. You remember the days of Joseph? When Joseph was elevated to Pharaoh's right-hand man? And in order to escape famine, Jacob... And his 11 other sons came to Egypt and they were allowed to settle in the land of Goshen. And there, Israel spent its childhood, you might say, in Egypt and grew into a mighty nation until a Pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph and then for 400 years subjected God's child, God's son, Israel, to the cruel bondage of slavery until God... In love, redeeming love for Israel, his son, called him out of Egypt. God sent Moses. God sent Moses into Egypt. 
with this message for Pharaoh. Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. God laid claim upon Israel, his adopted son, his people. And God arose in his love to redeem and deliver them from the oppressive evil that they suffered in Egypt, from the house of bondage to the land of Canaan. Hosea 11 verse 1 looks back on that history, that defining history of the Exodus, a defining moment in covenant history when God arose for the salvation of his people and the preservation of the line of Christ. But Hosea 11 verse 1 is not merely historical looking back. It is prophetic looking forward. And Matthew by inspiration perceives the deepest significance of these words of Hosea. Namely this. That the entire history of Israel, the entire history of the Exodus was a type, a shadow, a picture Of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. What happened in the Old Testament. To God's adopted son Israel. Is mirrored in the life of Jesus Christ. And really a better way to put it is not mirrored. Because Jesus Christ and his life and ministry is the reality. And Israel's history is but a picture of it. What happened with Old Testament Israel? God sovereignly orchestrated Israel's history to point ahead to Christ. Let's see that. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I called my son out of Egypt. That's what's happening here in Matthew 2. Who is God's son? Yes, Israel was God's son. His beloved child. Yes, the church is God's son. We are God's sons and daughters. But how? Through the work of the son of God. The true Israel of God. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of God. Not By adoption. He is God's only begotten son. His eternal. His natural son. Who was eternally in the bosom of the father. Who was sent into the world. To bring many sons and daughters to glory. Son is a messianic name. It's a title. There is prophetic significance here in Hosea 11 verse 1. Scripture makes clear. As the mother promise developed, you might say, throughout Old Testament history, a new revelation, new clarity was given to it. It was made clear that the promised Christ would be the Son of God. For example, 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, God gives the covenant promise to David. And God says this, About the promised 
Christ that would come from David's line. In 2 Samuel 7.14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, has a deep understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. That the whole point of the Old Testament is to direct our attention to the Christ who is to come. And Matthew sees Christ here. The Son of God, called out of Egypt. Christ is God's Son par excellence. And now, as we think about that history of the Exodus, do we not see how it pictures the life and ministry of Christ? When Israel was a child, Israel went to Egypt. The form of Jacob and his 12 sons. The nation of Israel in its infancy. Jesus, as a young child, goes into Egypt to escape the sword of Herod. In God's appointed time, he would call the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And out of Egypt, at his appointed time, God would call his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, you think of the rest of the history of the Exodus, and you set it side by side with the history of Jesus' ministry, and you see that the parallels continue. After God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to the Red Sea and he caused the Red Sea to part and he led his people Israel through on dry ground, baptizing them. After Jesus, or rather right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he goes to the river Jordan where he is baptized and begins his earthly ministry. Just as Israel in the Old Testament was brought through the Red Sea, separated from Egypt and consecrated unto God as a new and holy people. After Israel passed through the Red Sea, Israel entered the wilderness where they wandered for 40 days, often stumbling and falling, sinning against their God. After Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted and was tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights. But Christ, the Son of God, the Israel of God, never stumbles or falls in the wilderness, but obeys the entire way to the cross. And there's the heart of the significance for us to see this morning. Christ is the perfectly faithful and obedient Son who accomplishes the true exodus. He is the Son who succeeds where Israel failed. He is the Son who does not stumble and fall where Israel so often did stumble and fall. Egypt. Egypt is a picture too. We know that. The preface of the law tells us when God describes Egypt as the house of bondage. That's what it was for Israel physically. But that signifies a deeper reality. Namely, that Egypt in the scriptures is a picture 
of spiritual bondage. It is a picture of the guilt and the power of sin. It is a picture of the oppressive evil that is brought to bear upon God's people. It is a picture of the bondage of sin and all that is opposed to God and His people. And the Exodus is a picture of God delivering His people from that oppressive evil of their sin, calling them out, releasing them from the chains of guilt the bonds of the power and the dominion of sin, freeing them from the curse of the law that would consign them to an eternity in the house of bondage, which is hell. Deliverance. God called Old Testament Israel out of Egypt. But though they left the land of Egypt, They brought spiritual Egypt with them. Spiritual Egypt was carried with them in their very natures. Their fallen sinful flesh. And so we see throughout Israel's history how Israel the son of God continually stumbles and falls. And deserves condemnation. Deserves to be cast off. Deserves to be destroyed. Christ. The perfect, the obedient son never stumbles or falls. He walks the same path, but he succeeds as our Savior, as Jehovah's salvation. The perfectly obedient son who is faithful for us, who is without sin, who never rebelled, who never betrayed his God. Christ went into Egypt and was called out of Egypt. Christ took upon himself for us all that Egypt signifies. He took upon himself the fullness of the reality that is spiritual Egypt. The entire weight of our sins. He took that upon himself. He went into Egypt and he came out. He was called out. He took our sins away. That is the exodus. Christ's ministry, his cross, the empty tomb. That is the exodus. In fact, scripture itself calls Jesus' saving work the exodus. In the history recorded in Luke 9. Mount of Transfiguration, you remember Jesus is on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appear. And Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus. And Luke 9 verse 31 tells us this. They spoke to him of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. His decease, meaning death. But now that word decease in the original language is the word Exodus, his exodus, his exodus from this earthly life, the cross, is the exodus. That is where Jesus 
taking the fullness of spiritual Egypt upon himself for us, bore our sins, suffered the fullness of death and hell for his people in order to liberate us from the house of bondage, in order to deliver us from the prison cell of our sin, our guilt, the power and dominion of that sin. Christ went into Egypt for us. We who by nature are born in Egypt and can do nothing to get ourselves out of Egypt. Christ is exiled from Canaan to the house of bondage to save us who were exiles from the true Canaan. And to bring us into the heavenly Canaan, into the Father's house. That is the significance of this prophecy. Out of Egypt have I called my son, who went to Egypt to deliver you and me from Egypt, and to give us that right to be his sons and daughters, to be joint heirs with Christ, life everlasting, covenant fellowship, glory forevermore, heirs of an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. What rich significance in the fulfillment this prophecy in Hosea 11 verse 1. So now a concluding application. How do we respond to this gospel history? We respond By living out of the power of Christ who went to Egypt and who bore all that Egypt represents to set us free. We live out of the power of Christ. God called his son out of Egypt that he might call you and me sons and daughters and call us out of Egypt too. This requires then that we see our need for this Christ. By nature, we are spiritual Egypt. And even now we carry that spiritual Egypt in our sinful flesh. We cannot save or deliver ourselves. We need this Christ. But now the text sets before us the Christ that God has given to save us from our sins. It sets before us the true exodus. Christ, the captain of our salvation, leads his people on. All the way to the true Canaan. Rest in this Christ and in his finished work. God has called him out of Egypt. That's our comfort. But now God calls you and me out as well. It's the calling to fight against the Egypt that remains within our sinful flesh. Out of thankfulness and gratitude for the salvation Christ has brought to us. The text calls us to see who we are now on account of the deliverance God has given us. We are sons and daughters of the King. Let us not, like the Israelites in the wilderness, constantly be looking back to Egypt and yearning for the things of Egypt. Our flesh wants to. But let us look ahead to Canaan. The heavenly Canaan prepared for us and set our affections on things above. Let us forsake the old life of Egypt 
And live the new life by the power of the Spirit unto the glory of God. Let us look unto the author and the finisher of our faith, Christ Jesus. Showing him our thanks for deliverance with our words. But also with our lives. Let us pattern our lives after the exodus. Exodus from sin. Exodus from evil unto God, unto Canaan, unto his glory. Amen. Our faithful God and heavenly Father, we thank thee for this rich history contained in Matthew 2. and For the significance that it sets before us, the ministry of Jesus Christ. What he has done for us leading us on the true exodus unto the heavenly Canaan. Grant that this word may encourage us to trust in him, and may it also strengthen us to fight the spiritual Egypt that yet cleaves and clings to our flesh, that we may honor and glorify thee in thankfulness for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. This all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.